This is December 1st, the People's School for Marxist Leninist Studies. We're doing what happened in Hungary in 1956, the counter-revolution to overthrow socialism. The title of the book is The Counter-Revolution in Hungary in the Light of Marxism-Leninism. The author's name is spelt G-Y-U-L-A, Eula. The last name is Kalai, spelt K-A-L-L-A-I. We're going to start at the bottom of page four. There is no class, said Lenin, which can overthrow us, the proletariat, and the majority of the village poor are with us. No one can drive us to destruction except our mistakes. If is the root of the question. Lenin Works, Volume 32, page 45, in Hungarian. If our policy is correctly expressed, the objective requirements of social development, if the dictatorship of the proletariat is strong and growing stronger, if the party can win the confidence of the masses with its policy, if it recognizes and corrects in time the errors committed during the building of socialism, then the influences of the counter-revolutionary forces will be constantly less. The Hungarian Working People's Party, the Marxist-Leninist Party of the Hungarian working class, placed on its agenda the most important task of social progress the solution of the decisive question of the nation. It led the working class to power and achieved very important results in the building of socialism. With this, it won great prestige and confidence among the working masses and isolated the forces of reaction more and more. From the end of 1948, however, a policy began to prevail, which, although it correctly expressed the main lines of social development did not, in many respects, meet the concrete historical requirements, the specific conditions of our fatherland, and therefore led to grave mistakes. These mistakes reduced the great achievements of the people's democracy, and at the same time served as the target of the attacks against the people's democracy by hostile elements. An indisputable result of our development in our industrial development, the production level of which surpassed the 1938 level more than three times, it is true that at the same time, the resources of our national economy, and particularly the resources of industry, were engaged to a very considerable extent with preparation of national defense. In the international situation of that time, one of the main characteristics of which was the Korean War, and another the constant threats of the Americans with atomic weapons. The extensive development of our national defense was imperative. Although this exceeded our strength to some extent, we also know that the large-scale industrialization was accompanied by other difficulties and afflictions as well. Considerable disproportions arose in our national economy, and one of the main shortcomings of our development was in the consequences of the foregoing, besides the excessive rate of industrialization. The rise in the living standard not only could not keep pace 
but even declined in 1951 to 52 and the last half of 53. One of the very great results of our development was that in the period mentioned, the socialist sector of agriculture came into existence. We established a national framework of agricultural machine stations. Therefore, we considerably advanced the mechanization of agriculture. It is true that this development was hampered by the excesses, compulsions, and the occasional use of force which were apparent in the cooperative farm development policy, which decreased the results and the value of the socialist development of the village. Despite this achievement of our social development, was the establishment and growth of the socialist state of agriculture. The cooperative farm sector ineractively struck root in Hungarian agriculture, and not even the storm of the counter-revolution was able to uproot it. So what the comrade is saying here is that although there were mistakes made, the gains that were made were more positive and outweighed the mistakes. Yes, mistakes were made. Of course, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made in the Soviet Union as well. It's important to recognize those mistakes. No country is perfect, and there will always be mistakes in development. The issue, which will be talked about more later on, is the fact that the government would fail to realize these mistakes until it was too late. And it would see the rise of a right opportunist wing in the party, similar to what happened in the Soviet Union with the Trotskyites. We'll be skipping from here down to the second to last paragraph of page seven. The internal antagonisms of capitalist society are irreconcilable, stemming from the excess of the capitalist system. Therefore, they are inevitable and unavoidably give birth to shocks and crises. The situation is different in the society building socialism. The faults arising in the social life of our country during the building of socialism were not a consequence of the economic and social basis of our system, but were antagonistic to it. They hampered and weakened the development of our creative work. They arose from the fact that we did not recognize correctly the objective social processes in our practice, we violated the teachings of Marxism-Leninism. Our party, like all Marxist-Leninist parties, possessed the ability to rectify with a correct policy the errors made in the course of building socialism, not without conflicts, but peacefully. In June 1953, party revealed the gravest errors and on the whole correctly determined the source of the errors too. The mistakes committed in agricultural policy, the violation of the Leninist principles of party leadership, the cult of the individual, and the violation of law. Yet the June 1953 resolution did not bring about a radical change in the practical correction of the mistakes. It did not become a starting point for the strengthening of the dictatorship of the proletariat. In June 1953, Imranagi became the leader of the country, who already at the time had shaken the confidence, especially of the intelligentsia and the working peasantry in the party. A right-wing group began to form around Imranagi and their opportunism. 
petty bourgeois influences were reflected, diverging more and more from the path of representing the proletarian class interests. They openly oriented towards the middle section of the population and embarked on the road of weakening the dictatorship of the proletariat and abandoning the building of socialism. The root of this tendency reached back to Imranagi's opportunist views, which he admitted earlier. At the time, these opportunist views became apparent in connection with one of the most decisive questions of our development, the perspectives of Hungarian agriculture. According to Imranagi, the path of progress in agriculture should not be towards the establishment of collective farms, but toward increasing the economic strength and productive capacity of the small commodity producing sections. According to him, with the exception of the Kulak capitalist farms, the cooperative and non-cooperative farms also develop democratically towards socialism. Sounds exactly like Bukharin to me. For this reason, according to Imranagi, in this period of building socialism, the collectivization of agriculture is not a main, but only an auxiliary task with which the flourishing small and middle peasant farms are to be supplemented. As I just said, what Nagi is talking about here is almost exactly what was said by Bukharin, that the middle peasantry should be developing the economy through agriculture. That's what Bukharin wanted. This is the opportunism, the rightism of Imranagi. It's the exact same thing as Bukharinism. I think we should go on to questions. It's a very curious question because I'm trying to draw a historical parallel between the counter-revolution in the socialist camp of the 50s and 60s and the so-called color revolution of the NATO countries and trans-Atlantic capitalism, which is in total decline. So is there any parallel between the counter-revolution in the socialist camp and this color revolution? that is reported as something revolutionary and progressive. Yeah, I think Comrade is correct. I think it's almost identical. In the 50s, the State Department, under the Dulles, D-U-L-L-E-S, Dulles Brothers, their position was containment and change. Containment, they wanted to contain the growth of the socialist movement in Eastern Europe, and they wanted to change it, roll it back. It was actually called, it was called rollback. I think it's exactly the same thing as the color revolutions. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to add that the one thing that's a little different is that the counter-revolutions that were happening in the 50s and such here, the main thing that they were over was agriculture. One parallel that we can compare, though, is that the decline in agricultural production in the socialist bloc was something that did lead to the color revolution. And it was facilitated by the Western powers then just as it was in the 80s and 90s. A couple of things I had mentioned before. I was worried about this. And people made me believe otherwise, but I'm listening to the words of the author. It's very clear, very clear what I'm going to say. I took out some of it, I put it in quotes. Listen to this, comrade. This is the person who wrote this book. The positive effects of the 20th Party Congress. What 
in the world where any positive effects of the 20th Party Congress. I've been studying this my whole life. What is the 20th Party Congress in the Soviet Union known for? Everybody should know it on this phone call. It's known for only one thing, the denunciation by Comrade Stalin, by Comrade Khrushchev. That's what it's known for. There were no positive effects. The person to say that makes me see very clearly where they're coming from. It's a form of opposition to Stalin without mentioning it. How could they mention it when he wrote this book in 57? He's not going to mention Stalin at all. The other thing, quote, excess use of force. They constantly have said this, this author has said this, and I've heard it through Aptheka, the same line, excess use of force. Never once have I seen, somebody should show it to me, an example of an excess use of force. Again, an attack on the system that was set up by the help with the Red Army. And the third thing, mistakes. Mistakes that were made before by the Rokosi regime. Again, I haven't seen any of those. Everything I've read from both Aptheker and the current author does not give me any example, which makes me weary and suspicious. Thank you. I'd like to take a stab at this. First, I'd like to point out something from the end of the book, not to spoil it for anybody. But the author actually mentions that he's against the anti-Stalinist attacks, as he calls it. He's against anti-Stalinism. He's against the, as he calls it, newfangled revisionists. So it's interesting where he's coming from. He's coming from a point of view of somewhere in between, it seems. He's not anti-Stalin, but I don't think he's pro-Khrushchev either. It's very interesting. And something else I'd like to bring up is that in reports that Stalin himself made about collectivization, he himself actually brought up examples of excesses of force in the Soviet Union and mistakes that were made. So it is entirely possible that this happened because it happened during collectivization in the Soviet Union, and Stalin himself acknowledged this. So I do think that it's entirely possible that it happened here. So that's my analysis, is that looking at what happened in the Soviet Union and comparing it to what happened here, I do think it's possible because all of the sources that I have read have mentioned these excesses as well. We've talked about it a little bit, where with the dip in production and stuff like that and excess force that was mentioned, if we know, what were some of the reasons why there was that dip in production and in standard of living or whatever, what, what he said there, and what would be that excess force that they're talking about? So the dip in production, the dip in the standard of living just came from the nature of industrialization. In 1947, when the People's Republic of Hungary was founded, the only source of industry that Hungary had was an old Steyr munitions factory. So all they had was the ability to make weapons. They didn't really have any heavier light industry. And we have to remember that they had just gotten done fighting a very bloody civil war after being involved in World War II with the Nazis and the Red Army rampaging through the country, basically destroying everything. Hungary didn't look much better than Berlin after World War II. So they were recovering from that. 
So they were basically rebuilding from the ground up. So it makes sense that there would have been a dip in the standard of living. And in terms of the excesses, I'd like to look at Stalin's work, Dizzy with Success. There were early successes in 1948, 1949 with industrialization, where they thought things were going to go well, and they thought that things were going to go well, and because of that, they committed excesses in which they tried to increase production to a level that was unsustainable. And because they couldn't sustain it, it made production fail in a way that was hard to recover from for them for a while. And so it hurt the population, it hurt production. It was a mistake in socialist economic planning, which they would later learn from. I hope that answers your question, comrade. Yeah, perfect answer. Thank you very much. I was just wondering if anybody could elaborate on, I'm not quite sure I completely understand what this policy is, the agricultural policy that is, that Nagy and Bukharin were advocating for. I just don't quite understand it. So I actually have a bourgeois publication that talks a little bit about this, and they sort of accidentally tell the truth in this little excerpt when they're talking about the agricultural situation in Hungary during that time. It says, there followed a prolonged tug of war between Rakosi and Nagy, whose it called um, Imre Nagy's agricultural policies the quote-unquote new course, and it aimed at abandoning what it called forced collectivization and industrialization and laid greater stress on the satisfaction of personal consumption and welfare needs. I mean, it goes on to sort of slander the opposition to that policy, but that's basically the agricultural policy that Imre Nagy was trying to implement. What said was correct. He was focusing on personal accumulation of wealth, personal satisfaction of the consumer. The way this is similar to Bukharin's idea is Bukharin thought that this was the pinnacle of socialism. This was how we built socialism was consumer rights, essentially. That's what Nagi is talking about here is what I guess you could say is consumer rights socialism. I want to add to that. Majority of the land in the country was under aristocrats. It's been that way for many years. The war ended in 45. Their world came to an end. In 48, they tried to set up cooperatives. Most of it was forced. It's the old discussion that we had in the Soviet Union between Stalin and Trotsky and Bukharin on the issue of forced collectivization, as Kermit said. So what happened was that both Poland, and you should all beware of this, Poland and Hungary both had counter-revolutions. Both were over agriculture. Both were opposed to the collectivization. When the uprising happened in Poland, the Catholic Church, both in Poland, which owned the majority of the land before the war, and in Hungary, that owned the majority of the land, they wanted to get their power back, which was obvious. So therefore, the point I'm making is the similarity between Poland and Hungary on the issue of agriculture. My question was, all of a sudden, Nagy appears on the scene. He becomes a leader of the country, and I was wondering 
What is the story behind that? I mean, there's one statement here. How did he become the leader of the country? So Emirnagi was part of the Communist Party back a long time ago. He was one of the founders of the party. He was in the Soviet Union. He was one of the many people who went from being an NKVD agent to being a higher up in one of the communist parties. He had at one time been devoutly a follower of Stalin, one of the many people who it turned out was opportunistically so. He used this opportunistic following of Stalin to weasel his way up further into power. And he grew popularity in the party. And it got to a point where, because of his opposition, it became either they made him the general secretary or it seemed like the party was going to split. And the party kind of capitulated towards this because they figured, well, we'll let him have his fun for a little bit. He'll fail. It won't be that long. We'll kick him out. We'll kick his faction out, and that'll be the end of it, is basically what Rikosi, Ernoguero, and the rest of them all thought. That's basically what initially happened, but it didn't quite go as they planned, as you'll see a little later on. Does that answer your question, comrade? Yeah, that was great. Thanks very much. I want to add to that. This has all happened in the light. Let's look at the calendar. What happened in 1953? Who passed away in the World Communist Movement? Who had a guiding... That's right. This all happened in light of that. When that happened, immediately there were forces in the party began to form factions, one for Comrade Stalin and one against. It happened immediately in the Soviet Union. Three people came to power, Khrushchev, Molotov, and Beria for there for a short time, and another one. So this had happened immediately, which is a weakness, in my opinion, of how the party was developed. For so quickly, the leader goes, and the party had problems. Divided into different sections. So make sure you understand that this is part of the de-Stalinization that was going on in some sections of the party. Thank you. My question was, from what I understand, Russia and I guess the greater Soviet Union was not industrialized at all before the revolution. And I was just wondering how similar was the situation in Hungary before the revolution compared to situation in the Soviet Union before their revolution? So Hungary wasn't nearly as bad as the Soviet Union was, but they weren't doing great. They definitely had some industrialization, but the majority of what they had was in an old Steyr munitions factory outside of Budapest that was making guns. That was the majority of their industrialization. The rest of what they had was in agriculture, and they were still using wooden plows. Other than that, they didn't really have anything. So, in a way, they were almost as bad as the Soviet Union in 1917. You mean Russia? Yes. Did that answer your question? Yes. Thank you, comment. 
my question was when we were reading, you mentioned that the standard of living went down from like the late 40s to the early 50s. And I'm looking in here and they're saying, well, the wages fell by about 8% during that time. So during the period of the heavy industrialization and the collectivization. And I was wondering if it was anyone knew why the wages and the standard of living dipped so low during these crucial years. The simple reason is because a mistake that was made in a lot of countries at that time for going about industrialization was workers' austerity, in which they would cut wages. That was an issue. They cut wages to the workers. And we have to remember that going from a country that, again, had one munitions factory as all of the industrial power in the entire nation to being able to actually produce any kind of mechanized agricultural equipment or anything takes an awful lot of work. So it's going to require some sacrifices, unfortunately. So the reason was is because the government felt that they were making necessary sacrifices for what would later become the betterment of the people overall. Important to add to that. Again, go back chronologically to that date. World War II ends. These were devastated countries in Central Europe, especially the areas where the Red Army came in. They were fighting. What happened was that the war ends, the countries have to rebuild. What did the West do to the Western Europe economies? The Marshall they Plan. Pumped, that's right. They pumped the Marshall Plan. Thank you. Therefore, they were at a better advantage to progress. The East couldn't do that because the Soviets were bled dry because of the Nazi invasions and the policy where everything was burned. When the Nazis were coming in, the partisans burned everything to give the Nazis nothing. And the Nazis themselves, the biggest war battle was at Stalingrad. There's a city could, could I add on to that? Yeah, sure. And so the Marshall Plan, another big component of it was raising the standard of living in these Western European countries to minimize the popularity of communism and socialism. That was sort of an active part on behalf of the U.S. government because if they were able to popularize capitalism and sort of show that they could raise living standards in Western Europe with capitalism, which was essentially U.S. taxpayer dollars. I mean, it wasn't these Western European countries pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. It was basically a giant welfare handout. But essentially, if they could show these populations that capitalism could sort of bring them out of the real devastation that they had just suffered under World War II, it would minimize the popularity of socialist and communist parties, which, in effect, I mean, it really did. You know, it did. Know. Yes, you're right. You're correct, Comrade. Thank you. Go back to the reading. All right. We are going to go now to the last paragraph on page 8. At the same time, the Rokosi leadership was unable to break with its earlier mistakes. As to the nature of these mistakes, they were also petty bourgeois in character. Political impatience, which is profoundly alien to the proletariat, and at a tendency to giving orders, neglecting the day-to-day -day struggle to win and hold the broadest masses. The incorrect and subjectivist estimation of the political and economic circumstances. 
They use the criticism of the rightist opportunism to divert the attention of the party from the sectarian mistakes, to put an end to the sound process which began in 1953. Despite Imranagi's right-wing policy, and after March 1955, to return in many respects to the faulty methods used prior in 1953. Even after the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the Rokosi leadership was unable to break consistently with the mistakes and to make it possible that the party should further develop in a sound way. And now, the 20th Congress of the Communist Party, that's very important to remember here. That's the Khrushchev Congress. So that's when, this is a word that Angelo is not necessarily a big fan of, but that's when the revisionism really started to take root in the Soviet Union with Khrushchev starting to change things. So this is when a lot of things were forced to change in the Eastern European parties. Within the party, and as well as among the masses of the working people, Outside the party, dissatisfaction had grown because of the mistakes and the procrastination to correct them, on account of the resistance of the old leadership. After the 20th Congress, the sound nucleus of the party strengthened. They definitely wanted to put an end to the mistakes of their Kosi leadership, but they wanted to correct the mistakes not on the basis of the Iranagi rightist opportunism, but in the spirit of Marxism-Leninism. Therefore, the power existed within the party, which could have removed the obstacles from the way of strengthening the party. This process, especially after the July 1956 session of the Central Committee, was started and in the beginning it progressed successfully on several important questions. But at the same time, the group around Imranagi and Geza Lozansi embarked on feverish activity. The Imranagi Gezalizanshi faction professed in words to be the only representatives of creative Marxism and the spirit of the 20th Congress in Hungary. Actually, however, they did not struggle to correct the mistakes in the spirit of Marxism-Leninism, but to revise the basic principles of Marxism-Leninism. In reality, they strove to introduce a so-called national communist system in our country in place of the people's democratic regime. The revisionist views of this group were manifested mainly in the following, above all, in the denial of the leading role of the party. The first manifestation of this was Imranagi's stand in connection with the People's Patriotic Front. This was followed by efforts trying to divert the youth federation of the party's leadership. Certain writers and journalists demanded that the party should not only play a political guiding role in literature, art, and the press. A typical manifestation was Sandar Navabashi's article, which denied the vanguard role of Marxist-Leninist theory and called Marxism-Leninism spiritual cod liver oil. We can see here that there were people in the party who themselves were anti-communists, people calling Marxism-Leninism spiritual cod liver oil. This is clearly 
the work of not just right opportunists, but people who were against communism, people who wanted to establish national communism. And from here, let's see, we will skip down to page 11. The nagi Lazhansky faction made it a rule in the press and radio to strike a demagogic, criticizing tone to magnify the mistakes, to belittle the results, to display mistrust toward the Soviet Union and the people's democracies, unconditional admiration for the capitalist countries, and doubt in the principles of Marxism-Leninism. Part of their methods consisted of morally discrediting the party and state authorities. The state security organs, under the slogan, struggling against Stalinism and the quote-unquote Rokosi restoration. We're going to open it up to other questions of what was discussed within the last five minutes. It seems like there does seem to be genuine criticisms of the party to be had, but it seems like a large part of the uprising came from members of the party denouncing the party and this factionalist divide. What kind of ideological basis was there to completely split the party like that? This sort of directly answers that question that the comrade just had. This is on page 11. The Nagy Lozonsky group deliberately disrupted party discipline and began organized factional activity to undermine the unity of the party. They operated not only within the party, but outside the party. They took advantage of the growing dissatisfaction of masses and organized so-called democratic mass movements, which in essence was aimed at liquidating the party's leading role, at undermining the people's democratic power, and which directly prepared the October 23 armed counter-revolutionary uprising. So that's where I'll stop for that quote. But essentially, these two splits within the party, the Rokosi split and the Nagy split, or Nag split, the Nag faction, which we already described as a rightist opportunist faction, very much had a goal in mind of causing chaos, causing mayhem within the party, because they saw that as the best way to bring about bourgeois elements into the economy and into the political sphere. That's correct, comrade. And the other aspect of it is that the nag Ozovsky faction's main political aim was similar to what Nikolai Bukharin had wanted in the Soviet Union with wanting essentially a social democratic economic system for the economy. He thought that the social democratic economy was the peak of economic development. That's what he wanted. Did we answer your question? Yes, you did. Thank you. When it comes to the Hungarian communist's reaction to the 20th Party Congress in the Soviet Union, my question is, the faction that wanted to go with Khrushchev in the USSR, does the comrade state that that faction thought that the correct way for socialism to go was more of a bourgeois-inspired faction? So neither faction particularly saw Khrushchev as the way to go. Imran Nag didn't really like Khrushchev, and Rikosi didn't like Khrushchev at all. So there was fighting between both sides with trying to get away from Khrushchev. That was one of the big issues. 
And that was why Khrushchev was trying to rein in Hungary. The politician who was willing to go along with Khrushchev, though very begrudgingly, was Anno Gero, who was the person who allowed the tanks to come in. But he didn't do it because he liked Khrushchev. He did it because he knew that that was really the only way to save Hungary. So to answer your question, neither side liked Khrushchev. That does answer my question. Thank you very much, comrade. This is a problem in the communist movement. It always has been. From the time of the Russian Social Democratic Party, comrades, there was a split between the Martov group and the Lenin group. Eventually, they were in one party. There were two factions of one party. They eventually had to split. Now, I want to mention this. Because listen to this. This occurs constantly in communist history. Constantly. Afghanistan. We're going to have to do the Afghanistan on what happened. I was involved in the party discussions of the old party. Afghanistan had a split. People don't know this. Between two sections of the party. One section was called the Banner, B-A-N-N-E-R. I don't remember what the other one was called. But they split. And because of that split, the U.S. used that split again in order to cause a division and take down the socialist experiment that was going on in Afghanistan. What happened in Grenada? Same exact thing. The New Jewel movement was the Communist Party of Grenada. And that was undermined by a division between two forces, one involving Bernard Cord and his wife, and another one was Maurice Bishop. And the United States used that in order to overthrow the government. So each time, comrades, stop and think and don't allow, under the guise of democracy, the bourgeois elements in society to put salt on the wounds of our divisions. And that includes our party. This is not going to be the first time. Be on warning. Whether we're not in government like we were in Hungary or Afghanistan or Grenada or in an organization form, do not allow individuals to cause a split. If you see any kind of split, immediately say that you're opposed to the split and you're opposed to the direction and you demand the two forces have some kind of a solution. I'm urging everybody on the phone for that. Thank you. I just wanted to comment. seems interesting to me that they're trying to use materialism as a theoretical position to attack Marxism and Leninism, and considering that Marxism-Leninism was of a spiritual nature, and not of scientific reality, for an example. So there was plenty of contradiction in many petty bourgeois elements, it seems, with the counter-revolution that took place. And I understand also that both religions, Orthodox and Roman Catholicism, was also used to oppose the revolution as well. Is there anybody that could comment on that? 
This is on page 26 right in the middle. This pretty much exactly answers the question you were asking. The mass basis of the counter-revolution was constituted not of the industrial workers and the peasantry, but chiefly of the petty bourgeoisie, first and foremost the urban petty bourgeoisie, which parallel with the weakening of the dictatorship of the proletariat joined the counter-revolution. Certain sections of the youth played a great role in the counter-revolutionary events, particularly the youth of colleges and universities, who had not been schooled in militancy like the older, more experienced workers. And they're skipping that a little bit, and this is the last sentence. Petty bourgeois anarchism, revisionist views, and with these, the ideology of the bourgeoisie, as we have said, influenced a considerable section of the working class. And these things like universal freedom, universal democracy, in the West, we like to universalize these kinds of concepts. We like to say that freedom here, that's how freedom should be everywhere. And that kind of thinking was seeping into Hungary during this time. The idea that these universal concepts of freedom and democracy should be applied without consideration for the material conditions. And in this case, it would be Hungary. Yeah, thanks. It's more complicated than I realized. It's very interesting, actually. This was beginning, though of a lot of counter-revolutions in the Warsaw Pact nations and also in the Soviet Union as well, I guess. So I find that quite interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to mention that this is what actually was part of, this was part of what led to Albania breaking from the Warsaw Pact. Enver Hoxha was very opposed to the Soviet intervention in Hungary. It's ironic that Hoxha was such a fan of Rakosi, but he was against the people who were trying to make sure that Rakosi didn't come into power. He wanted to oppose Khrushchev no matter what. It reminds me of a Lenin quote that will be brought up later that involves the Kronstadt rebellion. I guess my question was at least partially answered within Angelo's explanation of the Grenada-Afghanistan context, but also the context about Albania. It was just within socialist history, we've seen various ways of how this kind of revisionist right opportunism has been dealt with and can obviously manifest in some particularly nefarious ways, as we saw like here with the Imernag leadership, but also with Khrushchev, but then it can go the other way, like with Hoxha being so anti-revisionist that you denounce everybody. So, I don't know, I'm just kind of wondering, where do you draw the middle ground? It's a very situational thing based on material conditions, but just kind of like a strategy for that. I have the answer to that, comrades, and I learned it in the Communist Party. Comrade Gus made this very clear at a meeting once. He said, our job is not to fan the flames for our own personal reasons of division. If we see there's a split coming on, our job is to unify, unify, unify. That's the answer. Every single case that you could mention, even those that were correct, if they pushed too far, they could have done damage from the right or the left. At the same token, there is a time when you have to do it. At a certain point, Lenin said to the Matov people in the Russian Social Democratic Party, this is the line of demarcation. That's the word from Lenin. 
This is the line of demarcation. We're not going to cross over this line. And that's when the split happened. But look at all the other cases. And you didn't mention Czechoslovakia in 68. You didn't mention East Germany in 53. Time and time again, the flames of division are fanned by the West. They're waiting. They're just waiting, waiting for the time to come in and do their damage. So we have to be realistic. Do we really always have to be correct? Or can our battle be for another day? But right now, keep it together. That's the only thing I could say. Thank you. Does that answer your question, comrade? Yeah, that's very good. Thank you. I'd just like to add that absolutely, we have to take things on a situational basis. We should try our best to be correct when we can, but we have to realize that we're human and we're going to make mistakes, of course. While we try to be correct, if we overtry, we can see where we'll make egregious errors. And I believe that this is a case of that with Comrade Rakosi, where I believe that the biggest error that he made is that he may have tried too hard to be correct. This is a short one. Going back to the cod liver oil analogy, there was mention of communism and national communism, and I'm a little bit confused. What is the difference between national communism and communism, if any? I'd like to stab at that, and anybody else would like to stab at that very quickly. The term national communism, I believe that was a precursor to Eurocommunism. Eurocommunism came in the 1970s. It affected the communist parties in many countries. The idea, it stems from the idea that communism is different because of the national characteristics of a country. I believe it was predecessor to this idea that runs contrary to Lenin, and he says in Marxism-Leninism, according to Lenin, it's basically a set of scientific laws that if this happens, this is going to happen, that kind of a thing, like an experimentation. It is not a dogma. It's not cod liver oil. It's not voodoo economics. It's something that's more scientific. That's the idea of national communism. That will be different in Hungary. That it will be different there than in the United States. You've heard this before, comrade. It's a cop-out. By the way, also communism in Hungary, the bourgeoisie used the term. By the way, it was the bourgeoisie who turned it. Goulash communism. Goulash communism in Hungary. And that's what it is. When I think of that, when I think of communism, it's if you're a communist, you're by definition internationally minded or an internationalist, if I'm not mistaken. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're correct, 100%. National communism is communism based on national characteristics. What they wanted with national communism is they wanted to form essentially socialism with Hungarian characteristics. Correct. And that's almost exactly what. Imranagi said, it was socialism with a Hungarian flavor. Did that answer your question? Yes, it answered it very nicely. Thank you very much. All right. The person who wrote this book either 
describing it or attributing to the Nagi forces. I got the impression that they were attributing it to themselves. They used the word giving orders. That's a code word for what we call command economy. You should write this down, the command economy. That's a term that were used by anti-Stalin forces in the communist movement. Khrushchev used it constantly. Command economy. That's a direct connection to the Stalin government in the pro-Stalin government in Hungary, which was led by Rakowski, by the way, to remind everybody, was involved with the first socialist government in Hungary in 1919, led by Bela Kun, B-E-L-A Kun, K-U-N. So Rakowski was continuing what they always did in the communist movement. Another two. In all the communist parties of Eastern Europe, they formed fatherland fronts. A fatherland front was a force putting together social democratic party and communist party and put them into one party. In Poland, it was called the Polish United Workers Party. And they did this in all the countries in Eastern Europe. And if you notice the reactionary forces, if you look at where they came from, they came from the Social Democratic Party element of that forced unity. And I call it force because they were forced. And it came from that area. The other thing is when the person who wrote this book refers to old leadership, they're really talking about Rakowski. And Rakowski was definitely a continuation of Stalin. So it's an underhanded criticism, clearly, of the Stalin period. That's my statement. My question was also related to the line of the national communist system, and I think that was largely answered earlier, but I guess I was curious what the parallels were between that and the state of the whole people line that Khrushchev pushed. Yeah, it's very interesting that you put that down. I see links between the line that the party no longer represents the workers of the peasants, now it represents all the people in the country. There's a connection to that. You're correct, comrade. Thank you. My question is on the Rakosi leadership. And in the book, we brought up some of the left mistakes, like political impatience, the day-to-day -day struggles to win and hold the broadest masses, and so on. And my question was, I know these things are wrong, but I wanted to know why they're typically characterized as specifically petty bourgeois and being alien to the proletariat. I have my own view, but I'd like to other people to try to say something. Anybody? Okay. It's obviously petty bourgeois because it takes away the centrality of the working class. What comes out of these people's mouths is this idea, we just mentioned it, national socialism, national communism using the idea of the whole people, as Comrade said. So I don't know if you could see clearly the connection between the two. I think I'd like to know why something like political impatience would not put centrality on the working class. Is it because the impatience makes these people see the whole people or something like that as the political subject rather than just the working class? Yeah. That's what I see, exactly what you just said. Anybody would like to try to answer that besides Angelo? Yeah, these sort of notions of the state representing the whole population 
from a Marxist view that that can't really be the case because all states have a class character. So when they talk about a state representing the entirety of the nation, it's sort of just a way of them saying that they feel as though like the petty bourgeoisie, for example, are underrepresented by a proletarian government, which is sort of the point of a proletarian government and that it represents the proletarian class and not petty bourgeois or bourgeois elements. Yeah, very good. Very well put. Does everybody understand what the comrade said? The communist definition and the Leninist definition is very clear, and the Marxist definition is that every society has a ruling class, and the ruling class under certain societies represents the subculture and the interest of the capitalist class. And other societies, as they were built in the socialist countries, it went from the ruling class to the working class. So there's no such thing as all the people, because the people, the term people themselves, is divided into different class interests. That's what the comrade is saying, and that's correct. I'm going to read the ending. It starts here with a quote from one of the counter-revolutionaries. This is at the bottom of page 13. The spiritual freedom movement at this moment is still led by Communist Party members. They're still demanding greater freedom within the party for the time being. Regarding to changes of personalities, this demand is still manifested only in the fact that they want to replace one communist with another. It causes us no anxiety that the struggle today is still led by Communist Party members. And Gula Kalai goes on to say, these remarks vividly prove the general validity of Lenin's conclusions drawn in connection with the Kronstadt uprising. At that time, Lenin said the following about the tactics of the capitalists and the landlords. Let us support anyone, even the anarchists. Let us support any Soviet power. Only let us overthrow the Bolsheviks. Only let us bring about a displacement of power. It is immaterial whether power is displaced to the right or to the left, toward the Mensheviks or the Bolsheviks. Only remove power from the hands of the Bolsheviks. As for the rest, we Milyukovs, we capitalists and landlords, will take care of the rest ourselves. What he's saying here isn't just. He's saying that the Kronstadt rebels, the capitalists, the puppets of the capitalists don't care. They'll support anybody as long as it hurts the Bolsheviks. Because at this point in time, Nagy and his clique, they were supported by the Western powers. Radio Free Europe, which existed even in 1956, was sending out telegrams, sending out radio messages praising him, saying that he was a good communist leader. That's the kind of person that Imranagi was. I'm going to skip down to the end here, down to page 34. The Imranagi Lozanshi faction never said openly that it wanted to break with communism, but it said that it would realize communism in a national form. In reality, national communism meant separation from the socialist camp which would have provided a possibility for the imperialists to subjugate 
the separated, unsupported country and restore the capitalist system in it. The October events proved that national communism is a fig leaf which disguises counter-revolutionary terror, just as, for example, in 1933, when the Hitlerite National Socialism masked for a time the essence of fascism, assuming power. And from here, I'm going to skip down to page 36. In conclusion, I will briefly deal with two additional questions. One question. Where do the Hungarian masses stand? Whom do they support? It must be honestly stated, following November 4th, the correct policy of the party and government and the efforts they made to carry it out would not have been enough to consolidate the situation had not the working masses followed and supported it. During the past six months, the working people themselves refuted the allegations of the imperialists. During the critical days of the country, they rallied more and more not around the imperialists, but around the people's power for the establishment and consolidation of which they struggled so persistently for 12 years, despite the errors committed. In the past months, our working class, working peasantry, and progressive intelligentsia proved with deeds, creative work, and by standing their ground in opposition to the counter-revolution, that in Hungary, the people's power and the working people are one and the same, a solid force inseparable from each other, which the counter-revolution will never succeed with any sort of machinations to separate and pit against each other. The Hungarian People's Republic has survived. The Hungarian dictatorship of the proletariat is alive and flourishing because the overwhelming great majority of our working people are standing by it more and more firmly and steadfastly. The other question, international reaction has been babbling for over 100 years about the bankruptcy of Marxist ideology. Naturally, this is what it did now too. The October-November counter-revolutionary events do not prove the bankruptcy of Marxism-Leninism or the non-viability of the socialist society. As certain bourgeois ideologists, the spokesmen of imperialism try to affirm. On the contrary, they prove how important is the unrelenting struggle against the critics appearing under the banner of the fight against Stalinism and the policy of the betrayal of the newfangled revisionists. They prove the truth and vital force of creative Marxism-Leninism, which is growing together with social progress. In the light of the events in Hungary, once again, the teachings of Marxism-Leninism on the dictatorship of the proletariat, the leading role of the revolutionary proletarian party and proletarian internationalism have been sustained. It has proven once again that only with the leadership of the party and the working class in power Relying on the international solidarity of the working class, is it possible to build socialism? And if we build socialism this way, our people's power, our socialist order will be invincible. At the end here, the comrade actually says that he is against the critics of Stalinism and against the newfangled revisionists. 
what he's saying is that Rakosi's mistakes to him would be called by Dimitrov Stalinism, but what would be called by others as Stalinism, as incorrect interpretations of Marxism-Leninism. To him, that's what it was, an incorrect interpretation of Marxism-Leninism along Stalin's line of Marxism-Leninism. So the comrade here still does support comrade Stalin. There was some confusion earlier from Angelo about that, so I just wanted to correct that. Thank you. Comrade, can you do the round robin? This is mind-blowing to me to see this perspective and read this perspective. I was definitely indoctrinated to believe that Imre Nagy was a democratic force, and it's just I'm still processing how I was so easily duped to believe that was true in spite of the fact that it was so obviously imperialist propaganda. Thank you. From what I can understand, this seems to be like an early example of the color revolutions that we see happening currently, like like in Belarus and Libya and even Bolivia a little bit. Were there any earlier examples of this kind of creeping Western imperialist influence over taking these parties that did not necessarily live up to the expectations of the proletariat? Radio Free Europe was set up by the CIA in 1946. People should know that. The Cold War was started by the U.S., Truman, in 1947. NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is the center of American imperialist interest in Europe, that was started in 49. Everything happened in that period because it was what the Kennan brothers and the Dulles brothers called rollback and change. It was a rollback policy that everything that Stalin had negotiated with Roosevelt was now going to be changed. Remember that Roosevelt was very close to Stalin. And Roosevelt's vice president was pro-Soviet, Henry Wallace. And that the leaders of the Democratic Party, the bosses, the real bosses, took Wallace out and put Truman in, the vice presidential slate, so that when Roosevelt ran, he did not run with Wallace. He ran with Truman. So this has all been a campaign. I don't want to say a plan, because today in the world, whenever you hear the word plan, you think of a conspiracy. The world I'm living in now, everybody's a conspiracy. There are some things that are not conspiracies. They are plans. They are calculated campaigns by economic interests to do certain things. And that's what this whole thing was in Eastern Europe. A little add-on to that. Radio Free Europe, if you go online now, most of the supposedly official information about things like the Ukrainian famine in 1932, 1933, most of that stuff is peddled by Radio Free Europe today. They're involved with the, as the comrade mentioned, the thing in Belarus. So they have their hands all over the counter-revolutionary and imperialist things that we obviously oppose. Commenting on something that there was a little bit of confusion about earlier, the whole national communism term, I wanted to point out that this wouldn't be the same thing as when Nagy talks about national communism. This isn't the same thing as the Marxist-Leninist doctrine of national self-determination. 
Oh, no, no. Totally different. Totally different. It has nothing to do with it. The national communist thing is I urge people on their own, Google, Euro, E-U-R-O, Euro-communism, which happened in my lifetime in the 70s. It's identical to national communism. Identical. They called it something else in my lifetime called Euro. And as Comrade read from the book correctly, it's an attempt to distance the socialist countries at that time from the Soviet Union. So it has nothing to do with the Marxist idea of determination. That's entirely different. That's it. Yeah, national self-determination is in response to imperialism. So, for example, like the Vietnamese National Liberation Front used it as a doctrine quite often and referred to themselves as left-wing nationalists. But this was because their country, Vietnam, was the target of U.S. and French and Japanese imperialism at that time. Correct. just wanted to say it's the importance of international class solidarity. And... For a socialist country to try to pull away from that and isolate itself is where it leads itself towards ruin. Look at the last part of that. The goal was to make Hungary isolated, and because it's right next to Western Europe, it would make it very easy to grab. And it's very important for us to, yes, be patriotic about our countries, but still be international communists who support working people all over the world. Thank you. I'd like to answer that one sentence. We are patriots of our country. We are not nationalists of our country. Nationalism is a form of chauvinism, saying that your country is better than all the other countries of the world. That's not what communists are. You're correct, comrade. But we are, as comrade Stalin said, from the Seventh Congress of the International, the Common Turn, we have to be the patriots of our country. We have to defend, and as Comrade Lenin said, it is our job to defend the bourgeois democracy in our country because the bourgeoisie are not going to defend their democracy. So we have to do it as proletarian defenders. We are the people that led the resistance movement in World War II throughout Europe, East Europe and West Europe were communists. They were not they were not other than communists. They were the real patriots of the country as Comrade Stalin said. So I want to thank you. One of the people that I talked about, his name was Geza Lazanshi. And he was Imranagi's press minister. And he was the second person in the faction with Imranagi. So the faction was him and Nagi. And he was essentially the person who was putting out all the propaganda against the Soviet Union and against the party and everything. And one of the things that they talked about that they really wanted to emulate was the system of Joseph Tito. They considered themselves Titoists, openly, stating so, in fact. They said that they wanted to follow the Yugoslav system and that they liked Tito. Insofar as after their failed counter-revolution, they went and hid out in the Yugoslavian embassy in Hungary and had to uh, eventually flee to Romania, where they would later be captured 
by the author of this book and be brought to justice later on. Thank you, Carmen, for that explanation. It puts everything in perspective. A vanguard. I hear a lot of speaking about a vanguard party. What exactly does that entail? And is there some parties that are not and some that are? I'd like to speak on that. There's a everyday use of the word. And then there's a Marxist use of the word. The everyday use of the word is elitist, vanguard, ahead of everybody else, and that's it. But a Marxist definition is very different. The vanguard is the people who go before to scout out the territory and to see where we can make inroads for our class as a whole. Look at it that way. They're part of the working class but they're the ones that come before the working class to check out where we can make progress and inroads for our economic class interest. That's the idea of a working class, of a vanguard. The vanguard cannot be too far ahead. If they're too far ahead of the people that they're working for, the class, and they go too far ahead, they'll get disconnected from the working class and they'll fail. The other opposite is if they're too far behind. If they're too far behind, they will become tailless. They will follow the masses of people who don't have a plan, who are just involved with a spontaneous situation. There's no plan. It's called tailism. Lenin called it tailism. So our job, like everything else, is to be right there at the right place. Think of the old story of the three bears I tell everybody. If you know the story of the three bears, Goldilocks comes in to the cabin and she Perfect. tries the chairs and she tries the soup and she says, this is just right. And that's the job of a vanguard, to be at the right place at the right time and to be just right. Thank you. I wanted clarification on something. So there were student-led movements that helped lead to the counter-revolution. The word militancy was used. There was the students weren't trained with militancy. Is that literally or figuratively? If you read the book and you get to that part, militancy in terms of ideological rigor and ideological structure. The book does mention how one of the mistakes was having an unarmed industrial working base. That is part of it, but in specific reference to what you asked about militancy, that was specifically a reference to ideological rigor within the party. And as alluded to, the tendency for these factions to not be bottled up as soon as they appear, but for these factions to spread and fester and create problems within the party. Thank you so much, Comrade. I do know that there were factions that were going on, and I really appreciate Angela bringing that up to be aware of that in any communist movement, the danger of that. And I experienced inter-party fighting before, and it's awful. So... I'm glad that that was brought up in connection to the situation that was in Hungary. And it's interesting to me that democracy being a siren song for many, many decades now, but in this country, the parallels with Hungary kind of stop because both parties use the term in an abstract, very spiritualized manner and a very inconsistent manner in terms of both their foreign policies and their domestic policies and where they want to play those terms, but it's always in the abstract. Thank you. 
I think we can learn from their experience in dealing with the threat of revisionism, even should it arise within the party itself or from an external force. I think it's good that we learn from their example. I just always think that it's very interesting to read socialist works from the early to mid-20th century and just see how relevant it is because I feel like everything we've talked about tonight are the exact same characteristics that just pop up in modern-day color revolutions and what we've been seeing in Belarus. In all these counter-revolutions to socialist countries, it seems like by the time that it's actually becoming an active counter-revolution, there doesn't seem to be anybody warning of it happening. And, uh, you know, even as uh, Perestroika was taking place, people were still trying to recognize it as a step forward and not a step backwards. And why there doesn't seem to be much warning still kind of puzzles me. Guess that's about it. Let's come away from something in this class tonight. There's a battle going on in this country right now. We have to understand that. It's a battle for the minds and the hearts, if you heard this slogan, for the people. And the capitalists are on their barricades defending their system. And we're on the other side. We want to get rid of this system, if need be, by overthrow and we're not afraid to say that the way others are if it needs to be overthrown it has to be overthrown we don't want revolution we need revolution and there's a big difference there's a big difference anybody in their right mind would not want to go through a revolutionary situation because it's a warlike situation but if we have to do things in order to survive as a human species then we're going to have to do it but what I want to mention is, again, what Comrade was saying, be careful of people among our own ranks, especially young people. Go on the Internet. These people are not our allies. Get away from that idea. Lenin correctly did it. He got away from the Matovs. He got away from the people that other people saying, can't you sit down with the Matovs? No, it's impossible. We have a totally different way of solving the problem. They want to live with capitalism. We don't. And there are people in our side of the barricades. Be careful of them. Be weary of anything they say. If they come out with anything that sounds very reminiscent of what the capitalists are saying, but they're saying it from a left-wing viewpoint. They're saying it from a left. Does that make it justifiable? Or is a lie still a lie? no matter where it comes from. And I just want to warn people that this class tonight explained in history how communists died because of allowing the disintegration of their party. They allowed it to happen. They didn't forcefully stop it. 1991, it was too late in Russia. In August of 1991, the people fought back. It was too late. The other side already had the tanks and the military armament, and they crushed out people in blood. Remember the famous quote from Comrade Morris Bishop? I bring this up again. Forward, ever. Backwards, never. And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you.
This involves a person named Ferenc Nag, who was the former prime minister of Hungary. He was the leader of the Smallholders Party, essentially the Kulak Party in Hungary. He and Anagero helped to pass the most progressive land reform bill ever in the history of Hungary up to that time during the Civil War period, the Liberation War period in the late 40s. And this is something that he said about the Amarnagi sect of the party. He said, the spiritual freedom movement at this moment is still led by Communist Party members. They're still demanding greater freedom within the party for the time being. Regarding to changes of personalities, this demand is still manifested only in the fact that they want to replace one communist with another. It causes us no anxiety that the struggle today is still led by Communist Party members. So what he's saying is that he's happy to see the internal struggle of the Communist Party. He wants to see the communists tear themselves apart. Because at this period of time, 1956, he was in Austria trying to enter Hungary to facilitate regime change through the West because the Western states were in full support of this, which is something that is often neglected in the history books. And Comrade Kalai goes on to say, these remarks vividly prove the general validity of Lenin's conclusions drawn in connection with the Kronstadt uprising. That was the uprising in, in 1921 during the Civil War in Russia in which some sailors decided that they wanted to form their own little Soviet in Kronstadt. And the white government, the Western powers, and everybody was supporting them. The anarchist black armies were supporting them. And he goes on to say, at that time, Lenin said the following about the tactics of the capitalists and the landlords. Let us support anyone, even the anarchists. Let us support any Soviet power. Only let us overthrow the Bolsheviks. Only let us bring about a displacement of power. It is immaterial whether power is displaced to the right or to the left, for the Mensheviks or the Bolsheviks, only to remove power from the hands of the Bolsheviks. As for the rest, we Milyakovs, we capitalists and landlords, will take care of the rest ourselves. And in that, Lenin is saying that the capitalists will support anyone, will do anything, no matter what the cost, no matter who it kills, whatever the death toll is, to stop socialism. They will do anything. So we have to remember that, comrades. I want to thank everyone for what I thought was an awesome class. I thought we discussed a lot of things, very, very pertinent and important things to our time, but also learned a lot about the history of a country that a lot of us may not have known about before. I want to thank everyone for running the class and say good night to everyone. Thank you.